Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, it's good to uh, be here, to be back here uh, with you all. If you've been here over the last uh, few weeks, you've noticed that uh, I haven't been the one preaching here in a while, and so I'm hoping that I still remember how to do it. Um, and, and that wasn't completely intentional. Uh, that was kind of the result of I had one trip get canceled, and, I, and then because that trip got canceled, I had another trip come up, and so that meant I didn't preach here for uh, three straight weeks. And I mentioned all that up front this morning because uh, I wanted to take the opportunity to say the last three weeks for me have been a, a really good reminder of how grateful I am to get to be a part of this church. I'm grateful uh, to have gotten to sit and listen to Ben and to Isaac preach over the last few weeks. I'm grateful to have so many people in this church, not just Ben and Isaac, who are both willing and capable to, to step up and preach and teach uh, when I am, an, uh, am unavailable to be able to. Uh, Rick and Isaac and the elders and so many other people have put in a lot of hard work uh, over the years before I was ever here to make sure that Marion was uh, both a great place to work and a great church to get to be a part of. And I've been reminded of that over the last few weeks. And I'm so grateful to have gotten to come in and, and be the beneficiary of so much hard work that's been done. So I wanted to take the time to say that up front this morning, that I'm grateful for you all. I'm grateful to be here. And I'm grateful to be a part of this church. We're starting a new series today, and to help kick that series off for us, if you will indulge me a little bit this morning, we're going to have a brief discussion about superheroes. And so, to be able to have that discussion, I couldn't do it on my own, so I've called in the expert if Henry Carroll would join me on stage just for a little bit. He's so excited. Can't you guys see how excited he is? All right, Henry, I need you to tell all the good people. That was going to be a five, but. <laughs> all right, Henry, I need you to tell all the good people here who your favorite superhero is. Um, one of my favorite superheroes are either Spider-Man or Superman. Spider so if you couldn't hear Henry, his two, fa two of his favorite superheroes are either Spider-Man or Superman. Can we pick one of them just for the other questions I have for you? Um, they don't have to actually be your favorite. Spider-Man. Okay, so Spider-Man. We're going to pretend that's Henry's favorite superhero here for a little bit. What is it about Spider-Man that makes him one of your favorite superheroes, Henry? He's faster than other superheroes, like Robin and the other guys. So he's really fast? I thought he could like climb walls and things. But you like that he's fast, not that he can climb walls and shoot webs out of his hands. Okay. Okay, so Spider-Man's fast. Is he faster than you? Yes. Like how much faster than you? Three times faster. Exactly twice as fast as you are. <laughs> but roughly twice as fast as you, you yes. think. Okay. Well, that's helpful. That's a good estimate to have in my brain how fast Spider-Man is. What else, so what else, so other than him being faster than you, what is Spider-Man able to do that you can't do? Um, swing from trees and swing. I mean, you could swing from trees if you wanted yeah. to. No. <laughs> so Spider-Man's able to swing from trees and stuff. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. So what would have to happen 
for you to be able to swing from trees? Like, what would have to happen for you to be able to be like Spider-Man? What would have to change in your life for you to be able to be Spider-Man, do you think? I don't know. Other than, like, getting bit by a radioactive spider. Is that really the only option? The only way for you to become Spider-Man? No. I mean, basically. <laughs> basically? Okay. Well, if I see a radioactive spider, I'll let you know, okay? <laughs> all right. That's all I needed, Henry. Thank you for coming up here. Give Henry a hand. We're starting a new series today called A Man Like Us. And we're taking that title uh, for this series from James 5, verses 17 and 18. Uh, Right at the end of the book of James, James is calling his readers to pray. And as a part of that, he, he writes in verses 17 and 18, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James uh, alludes there to 1 Kings 17 and 18, the passages that we're going to be looking at today and next Sunday. Uh, But the interesting part of those verses is what you can see on the screen right now. The very beginning of verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Most of the time, as we're reading Scripture, we can view the, the characters of Scripture as otherworldly. We can view them as superheroes. We can look at them and think that they're so different from me, I could never be like that. I'd have to get bitten by a radioactive spider to be able to be like that. And yet, when James is calling his readers to be people of prayer, and he looks back on the story of the Old Testament, he looks at Elijah and he says, Elijah was a man. Elijah was a human being just like you and just like me. And look what God accomplishes through just a human being like Elijah. And the takeaway from that verse and our angle for this series is not that Elijah was just like us, therefore if we pray hard enough, we can do anything that Elijah did. What that comment from James should tell us instead is that there was not necessarily anything special about Elijah in himself. Instead, The thing that set Elijah apart, the thing that made Elijah special, was how God was at work through him. So, over the course of this series, we're going to be walking through the life of Elijah, not for the sake of wanting to better understand Elijah so that we can be more like Elijah, but for the sake of understanding who God is and how God works in and through Elijah so that we can better understand how God wants to work in and through us. Like I already said, we're going to be starting this series today by looking at 1 Kings 17, which is where Elijah enters the narrative of Scripture. And he remains on the scene up until about 2 Kings chapter 2. So that's the portion of the Bible that we're going to be looking at over the course of this series. And we're not going to be covering every single story in in detail. So if you want to be reading along throughout this series uh, in your regular Bible reading time, I'd encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible reading plan right now and you're looking for something, that might be a way for you to be able to be reading along with what we're covering here on Sunday mornings. But like I said, Elijah enters the scene in chapter 17. But the way he does it is a little strange. If you were to think of this story like a play, Elijah basically just walks on stage and starts talking. We're not told any 
all that much background or introduction or, or really anything like that. We're, we're told about Elijah's hometown, but even to this day, scholars don't really know for sure where that hometown is. And so for that reason, uh, it's worth backing up just a little bit so we have a sense of what's going on. At the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, we are introduced to King Ahab. And really, everything we need to know about King Ahab is summarized in 1 Kings 16.30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Ahab and his wife Jezebel are on a mission to lead the people of Israel, the, the northern ten tribes of God's people, to worship Baal instead of God. And we'll see their efforts to accomplish that a little more in chapter 18 next week. But under the rule of this evil king, Ahab, who worships another god and is leading God's people to do the same, Elijah shows up, showing that the God of Israel is the only God who is worthy of our worship. The nation of Israel, just like you and me today, needs God. and needs God alone. So let's look at our passage, starting in 1 Kings 17. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 for us. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, uh, turn eastward and hide in the Carrot Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Carrot Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Rain, precipitation, is a big deal. I know those are the sort of deep insights you expect me to come up with up here on stage week in and week out, but rain matters a lot. If you don't believe me, ask any farmer you know, and I would almost guarantee you they can tell you how much rain they've gotten in the last month, in the last couple of weeks, how much more rain they need for them to feel, feel good about, about their crops for the year. I was talking to my dad just a couple days ago. He asked how the weather was. I said, I, said, I think it's going to rain tonight, and he immediately told me about how much rain they had gotten in the last week. For anyone who is counting on making their livelihood from the ground... Even today, going without rain for a long period of time is a big deal. But especially for, for this part of the world, at this time in history, where just about everyone is, is living off the land, rain is absolutely essential. Going without rain for a significant period of time poses a huge problem for the well-being of the entire region. This is a massive agricultural and an economic problem. But it's not just an economic problem. It's a theological problem. There's a specific reason why God chooses to act in this way when he shows up. Israel has abandoned worship of him to worship Baal instead. And Baal is the god of the storm. Elijah does not show up and proclaim on God's behalf that there's going to be a drought because God got his feelings hurt and that was the first thing he could think of to get back at the Israelites. If you've been with us in Sunday schools, we've been making our way through the book of Judges over the last couple months. You've seen time and time again that the nation of Israel was notorious for abandoning God to worship the gods of the nations around them. 
Every other nation in the ancient world worshipped the gods that they thought were most inclined to help them. If you needed something, you, you made offerings to the God that you thought was best equipped to be able to help you to address your need. And if something was going wrong in your life, that must mean that you had angered some, some God. And you got to figure out which God it was that you, that you made mad and make the right offering so that they will forgive you, so that, they will, so that they will fix whatever problem it is in your life. And when Elijah shows up and pronounces that it will not rain until he says so, he's showing how this system is broken. This is God demonstrating to his people who have abandoned him for the sake of a God that they think will better meet their needs that he is the one God who is worthy of their worship. He is the one true God. He is the only, only God able to control nature, the very thing that Baal himself claims to be supreme over. The people of Israel, led by King Ahab, have decided God was not meeting their needs, so they need to, needed to worship Baal instead. Baal was better equipped to take care of them. But in doing that, they have abandoned the only God who is actually real, who is actually able to care for them, who is able to actually bring rain. And God alone sustains. God demonstrated his authority over all things by not just withholding rain, but also by providing for Elijah in the midst of this drought. As the nation of Israel turns away from God, the prophet who remains faithful to him is sustained, even though it's through maybe some odd means. Just like in the story of the Exodus, where God provides miraculous food for his people time and time again, God here works through nature to sustain Elijah. God alone sustains. We can read Scripture and be shocked at the idolatry of the Israelites, but we're more like the Israelites than we would ever care to admit. Human nature really hasn't changed that much from 1 Kings 17. We will still pledge our allegiance to whatever, whatever idol it is we think might bring us comfort and security. If the God of money promises us that it will fulfill all our hopes and dreams, we will sacrifice our health, we'll sacrifice whatever might be necessary to attain more of it. If the God of politics guarantees us that everything will be okay if we vote for the right candidate, we'll give up our time, our money, we'll give up relationships with those who disagree with us so that we can meet that end. If the God of education tells us if we just had one more degree, then our life would have meaning. We'll go into debt, we'll give up all our sleep, all of our free time to be able to get it. If the God of career promises us that everything will be fine if we just got that promotion, we'll give up our nights, our weekends, times with our friends and our family, thinking that eventually it's going to be worth it. And every time we do that, whether we recognize it or not, we are making the same trade-off the nation of Israel makes under the reign of King Ahab. And just like them, sooner or later, we will find ourselves wanting. Other gods will make us promises. Other gods might, be, might even be able to deliver on those promises in the short term. But only God can sustain us. Only God can sustain us for all time. There is nothing inherently wrong with desiring any of the things that I just named. Just like there's nothing wrong with Israel wanting rain for their crops. But the problem arises when we shift from wanting meaning from whatever that thing is as opposed to finding our meaning first and foremost from God. Only God can sustain us. And as we keep reading in this story, we see that only God can provide for us. 
going to read 1 Kings 17, verses 7 to 16. Sometime later, the, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath and the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, uh, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then go make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The way God sustains Elijah ends... As the drought continues, the brook he's been getting water from dries up, and yet God has another way to provide. But if you were Elijah, those directions from God there in verse 9 probably wouldn't have been what you were hoping for. I mean, uh, just put yourself in Elijah's shoes. You've been living in a cave. All the food you've been eating for some time now has been brought to you by birds. You've been getting all your water straight out of a stream, and God says, okay, Elijah, it's time to move on. I mean, you would be, I mean, anything's really an upgrade over that, but you've got to be thinking for big things, for what's going to be next. I mean, maybe, maybe God has a completely furnished lake house waiting for you that's got a fully stocked fridge and pantry, and you're going to be able to get away and recharge a little bit before God sends you off to whatever your next, your next task is going to be. But instead, God says, I'm going to provide for you by sending you to a widow in Zarephath which is strange for a couple of reasons. First off, Zarephath isn't in Israel. Zarephath, like the text says, is in Sidon. And from what we can tell, this woman is not an Israelite. She's not a worshiper of the God of Israel. In fact, Sidon's the homeland of Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab. We just learned at the end of 1 Kings 16 that, that Jezebel's entire mission is to get the whole nation of Israel to worship Baal instead of worshiping God. God is sending Elijah onto Baal's home turf and saying, that's where I'm going to provide for you. Yet God says he is directed, your translation might say God has commanded a widow there to supply Elijah with food. Which again, the fact that it's a widow is the second thing about this that's strange. A widow would have been at the very bottom of the social and economic ladder even when times are good. A widow has next to nothing, very little. And in the midst of this drought, best case scenario is she is close to starvation. But when Elijah walks into town, he finds God's provision. 
The widow God had told him about is there gathering sticks, probably just picking up whatever scrap she can find that might be laying around in the town square, wanting to try to make a fire prepare so that she can prepare what she is fully expecting to be the last meal she and her son will ever eat. But Elijah starts making requests. And the first one wouldn't have been that odd, really. Normal hospitality customs would have said that if a traveler shows up in your town and you're the first person that they see, you drop everything to go get them some water to welcome them into your community. The second request is more difficult. Again, try to put yourself in the shoes of this widow. You have just enough resources available to where you're going to be able to make yourself one more meal before you just sit and starve to death. That's assuming you can find enough scrap sticks laying around town to be able to start a fire to begin with. And all of a sudden, someone shows up, some stranger starts asking if, they can, if you can make them a meal. I mean, imagine you're driving home from a long trip, and you're almost, you've just got, you've planned it all out, you've got just enough gas to be able to get home, you don't have any money to fill up again, and someone asks you if you can give them a ride to Rochester. And you say, well, great, you know, I can, I can, you can ride along and make, I'll, we'll make it, I'll drop you off somewhere along the way. It's not going to be, it's not going to be out of my way at all. And then they start asking you if you can run some errands for them. Like, hey, I need to pick up my dry cleaning. Can we stop and do that? Uh, can you take me, I actually live on the other side of town from you. Can you drive me all the way across town and drop me off at my house? And you say to them, look, look I really don't have that much gas left. Like, I have just enough gas to get to my house. And I don't have any money to fill up after that. So I, I don't think I can do all of this for you. And they respond, oh, no, just trust me. I promise. As long as you do everything I say, you're never going to run out of gas. Now, the cynic in me hears that and immediately thinks, oh, yeah, easy for you to say. You get everything you want, and I'm left to deal with the consequences. Sure, yeah, I, I, I bet that I'm not going to run out. That might be what we would expect from this widow. Oh, I'm sure, random prophet from Israel, I will never run out of flour or oil as long as I feed you before I feed myself. Sure. You're not going to just take all my food and skip town and leave me to starve to death. I'm sure that's what's about to happen. And yet she acts in faith. She does what Elijah asks and through that experiences the provision of God. Now again, keep in mind that what is going on here is not an economic problem or an agricultural problem. It is a theological problem. Elijah is on Baal's home turf. There's nothing about this woman that tells us she's any more predisposed to worship the God of Israel than any other resident of Zarephath. When she speaks to Elijah at the beginning of this story, she says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, which seems to indicate she can tell that Elijah's an Israelite about how he looks or how he's dressed or something like that. But that doesn't indicate anything to us about her feelings towards the God of Israel one way or another. But it's from the God of Israel that she experiences, his, she experiences provision, she experiences deliverance from death. Despite her lowly status and her lack of resources, God provides for her needs. God alone provides. Across the story of Scripture, we see time and time again, God is especially concern for the destitute, the outcasts, the down and out. When Jesus is beginning his ministry, one of the first teachings he ever gives in Luke chapter 4 is from this story. 
And he refers to this story to drive the point home that God has always been concerned about people like this widow. And in the same way, he was going to be concerned first and foremost with those who have no hope aside from God himself. And the same is true today. If you feel down and out, God is able to provide. If you feel trapped under the weight of sin this morning, God cares about you and he wants to deliver you into freedom. If you feel despair because of loss, because of tragedy, God cares about you. He wants to comfort you in the midst of your pain. If you're overwhelmed with anxiety, God cares. He wants to bring you peace. If you're dreading whatever it is that might be waiting for you when the alarm goes off tomorrow morning, God cares. And He wants to go with you into whatever the next week might hold. God is our provision. Every breath we take comes from Him. He is near to us, He cares about us, and He's able to provide for us like nothing else in this world is able to do. So even when your confidence is shaken, our hope is in Jesus. The fact that Jesus' tomb remains empty is the fact that grounds the rest of our outlook on the world. The resurrection of Jesus means we are able to live with hope because it demonstrates once and for all that God provides. God provides even in the face of death, which we see in the last few verses of this chapter. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. Uh, He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Then the Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. It would be really nice if the story of Elijah and this widow ended after verse 16. There's no hiccups or uncertainties, but the story doesn't come to us that way. After some time, we don't know how long, the the woman and, and her son who escaped death from starvation through the provision of God through Elijah are still forced to deal with the reality of death. And that confrontation is jarring for this widow. I mean, she's had a prophet from God living with her. She's had this miraculous provision of flour and oil all this time. Surely nothing bad would ever happen under her roof as long as Elijah is there. And yet, it's not what happens. Her son dies. And with it, her hope for the future dies too. There are no social safety nets around to to make sure she is provided for. There's there's no check coming in each month to make sure she can buy groceries and keep her bills paid. There's no life insurance policy around. Her only hope for a future comes from her family. And now her last living family member is gone. 
And notice that neither her nor Elijah react to his death in the way we might expect. I mean, if this was a story where we were supposed to look to Elijah or this widow as the heroes, we would maybe expect that somewhere in here we would get a theological explanation of what happened that ties up all the loose ends for us, answers any questions we might have. It's not what we find. We find a mother who is angry, accusing Elijah of being the very reason why her son has died. And Elijah doesn't even seem to fully understand what's, what's going on in this situation. He takes the boy up to the room he's been staying in. He cries out to God there in verse 20, asking God why he has allowed this to happen. God, God this, is a, this is a sweet old widow. She's taking good care of me. How on earth could you let this happen? And even as Elijah is doing the very thing that raises this boy back to life, it's not like Elijah has a magic formula for how this is going to play out. It's not like he's certain that this is going to work. He's pleading with God the entire time. And throughout this passage, God is not afraid of the complaints of Elijah and this widow. God is not angry that this widow or Elijah are not 100% confident in who he is or completely understanding of what's happening. And that's a pattern we see across the story of Scripture. If you've ever felt a, a negative emotional reaction towards God for something that's happened to you or someone you care about, but you were fearful that if you actually voiced that, you would be struck down, God is big enough to handle your emotions. God is still present, still at work, still listening to the prayers of His people. God can handle your questions. He handles that here by raising the son of this widow back to life. I don't think this is a formula for how to handle sickness and death for all time, but it does show us that God alone revives. Remember, we're outside of Israelite territory. And the logic of any person who is not an Israelite in the ancient world, if any deity should be able to help this widow and her son, it is Baal. And yet there's nothing but drought and death happening all around this widow. The only hope, the only source of life, the only way for reviving to happen comes from the God of Israel. And yet I choose that word revive intentionally. This is not a complete resurrection. Just like the people Jesus raised from the dead during his ministry, this widow's son would die again. And yet that power over death that God demonstrates here is a foreshadowing of something greater. Our God who creates all things has power over life and death. And when we're faced with the reality of death, I, I think, and this is speaking from experience as much as anything, a reviving like this widow's son gets here wouldn't be half bad. I mean, what, what Elijah does here sounds better than having to go to a funeral. And yet... The message of Jesus offers us something far better than reviving. The message of Jesus brings resurrection. Not a temporary deliverance. Not kicking the can of death a little farther down the road to deal with at a later time. But a promise that one day, all of God's people will be raised to eternal life to dwell in God's presence forever. That life is not just getting to come back to experience this broken world for a little bit longer. It is a guarantee that God will make all things new, and all things includes us. That's the hope that the God we put our trust in brings us through His Son, Jesus. 
One of my professors once summarized the book of Romans in three sentences, and I'm fully aware of the fact that we're not talking about Romans this morning, but it still fits, I think, if you'll bear with me. And those three sentences are, God can be trusted. We must trust Him. And we must trust only Him. Each piece of that, those sentences are important. God can be trusted. As His people wander away from Him, like we see in this story, He remains faithful. He doesn't send a drought as retribution, but to show His people that every other God will fail, but He will not. And for that reason, we trust Him. And we must trust only Him. Only He is able to sustain us, provide for us, and revive us. So that's the call at the outset of this series for us. We need God alone. We don't need God plus anything else. We need God alone. So if you've never fully put your trust in God, my prayer is that you will see over the course of the next few weeks that He can be trusted. If you find yourself wavering between trusting in God and trusting in any number of other things to get you through the day to day, I hope you can see and will see over the next few weeks that God is the only thing we will ever find who is worthy of our trust. God can be trusted. So trust in Him and trust in Him alone. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are good to us. Through all the ups and downs, the the trials, whatever we go through in life, you are there and you can be trusted. We thank you that you're good to us. We're grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful that you've sent your son and that his resurrection means that we can trust in you at all times, that you are greater than whatever we might deal with in this world, even death itself. God, forgive us when we don't trust in you as deeply as we should. Help us to grow in that. Help us be people. Help us be a church that can say confidently, we trust in you and in you alone. And as we do that, we find life, joy, and peace that you've promised us. All because of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.